Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as people in need. We need Jesus. Lord, you know that I'm not worthy to speak on your behalf, but you called me. So I trust that you will speak through me today. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, may everyone within the sound of my voice have an open heart to hear the message that the Holy Spirit is bringing to them this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why are you here this morning? I don't want you to answer that question out loud just now, but I want you to think about it for just a moment. Why are you here? Is it just to check out the new pastor in town? See if he's a good speaker or not? Maybe you're here because your parents are here and you didn't have a choice, so they brought you. Or maybe you're here to see your grandparents. Or maybe you're here because you've always gone to church here. That's just the way it is for your whole life, maybe for generations. This has been your church. It's just what you do. I want to challenge you this morning as I share a bit of history to examine yourself to make sure that you know why you're here. I've entitled the message, His Story and Mine. It's a nice accident of language, perhaps, or maybe it was intentional. His story is actually his story. It's a story of God and his interaction with his creation. And so history is the story of God, and my history is the story of me and God. We go back quite a ways, and I'll come to that in a moment, but first I want to clear up what may perhaps be a little misconception. I think at one point when we were being introduced, it was said that we came from California, and what most people think of when we say California is crowded beaches. I don't know, did you think of this when you hear the word California? Or maybe you might think of swimming pools and movie stars, celebrities. Or some people think of the Golden Gate Bridge and San Francisco. But if that's what you thought, you were completely wrong. Uh, we're, we're actually from a little state called State of Jefferson, which is up there in between Northern California and Southern Oregon. I don't know if you've heard of it before. This is where we're from. This is Mount Shasta. This is, this is my home. And uh, hopefully all of you can visit us there someday. Um, this, actually when I was young, that was pretty much the view that we had of Mount Shasta from our house. Uh, we, my dad can vouch for me on that. But where we recently came from was a little a place called Scott Valley, which is just a few miles from Mount Shasta. So this is a picture of Scott Valley. And there in the distance you can see the Russian wilderness, the, the southern edge of the Marble Mountains and the northern edge of the Russian wilderness area. There's Scott River flowing through the valley. And 
just in case you thought maybe I just took that professional photo off the internet to show you, I'll show you one that I took just a few weeks ago on my phone from my truck. So it was through the, the dirty windshield of my ranch truck. Um, and this road, this is actually the road right in front of our home there in Scott Valley. And uh, of course, there's the mountains and the, the hay field. Uh, uh, it was actually wheat this year is what was planted there. So that's where we came from. If it doesn't look like what you think of when you think of California, there's a good reason for that. So the, the area in red that you see here, this is the mythical state of Jefferson. You can look it up online if you don't believe me. And this is the state flag and the state seal. You'll notice the green which represents the, the mountains and the forest, the gold, which represents the gold. <laughs> and this, this actually, if you know, have any of you ever done any gold panning? Anybody? A couple of you, okay. So this, this is a, like a gold pan, Look, looking at it from straight above, and you'll see the two little X's there. The two little X's represent being double-crossed by... Sacramento and Salem because the people, these, the people of the hill country up here, just like people of the hill country all around the world, they're different and they don't fit in too much with the flatlanders. So anyway, that's, that's where we're from. Here's a picture of the church where I served as pastor for the last 19 years the Scott Valley Seventh-day Adventist Church. And th there again, you can see the mountains in the background. And we have, there's about uh, 40, 45 members, something like that. On a, a busy Sabbath, we'll have 35, 40 people in the church. And I thought you might be interested in that. This is the stained glass window at the front of the church. And I thought it was pretty neat that this is right here. I don't know if, it's, if they just changed clothes in between or what, but it's just, I'm pretty sure it's the same three angels because wherever we are, we are to be proclaiming the three angels' messages, the everlasting gospel. And the other, the other reason I put that picture up there is because I'm... I'm actually going to do something very strange. As a new pastor here, I'm going to say that some of you need to leave this place. Um, let me ask, how many of you have ever done any gardening? All right, pretty, pretty good number of you. What do you do in the garden when the plants are too crowded up close together? Is that the best way for the plants to grow? No, what do you do with those extra plants? You, you, you thin them out, and if they're actually valuable... Well, if they're not too valuable, you just, you know, pull up some of them and throw them away. But if they're valuable plants, you transplant them into a place where there's more space for them to grow and flourish. And so I believe, as my family has been called from there to here, that God is calling someone from here, probably a family or two, to leave this crowded place where you can barely turn around without bumping into a Seventh-day Adventist and to go to Scott Valley to help the church there. So if God puts that burden on your heart, Pastor Dennis at prayer meeting, some of you 
were here at prayer meeting. Some of you didn't hear that. Pastor Dennis said, are you where God has called you to be? And I think each one of us needs to think about that and make sure that we are where God has called us to be. And some of you, God is calling to leave this place and to go work in other areas where it's not so crowded up with so many advocates. But hopefully, I won't get fired for saying that in my first sermon right off the bat here. All right, so now that we've cleared that up, just a little bit more uh, introduction to the family. This picture was taken about two years ago. Michael and Natasha decided to get married. Some of you know the Greenlee family, and uh, they're from here. So here we have my oldest son, Michael. Next, number two boy is Joseph. There's Samuel, Abigail. Let's see, Michael is here today with Natasha. I'm glad to have them visiting. Joseph is fire chief in Fort Jones, a little town that we came from. So he's married. Well, you'll see the rest of the family in just a second. Um, that's Samuel. Abigail's in college at Weimar University. This is Gideon. He's sitting right over there. There he is. And do we have something loose here? Seems like I'm getting a little popping sound. All right. Uh, and that one's Susanna. Yeah, maybe it's just too close to my face. I'll try that. Okay, here we have the big family all together. This was Samuel and Eden's wedding last fall. Uh, some of you will recognize my father here. And there's my mother there. And of course, my wife, Vicki, and myself and Michael and Natasha, there's Joseph and Samantha and our grandson Stephen. And let's see, of course you recognize Gideon and Susanna there. All right, but that's close to the end of the story. Well, maybe not the end of the story, the, maybe the middle. I, I like to think of myself as middle-aged, so maybe it's the middle of the story. So I'm gonna skip back to the beginning of the story. I'm going to skip back to the beginning of the story and tell you that I was born, I, I was sort of, I was born in Iowa, but it was kind of an accident because my parents were both from California. They met at Pacific Union College in Angwin area, got married. My dad accepted a call to pastor in Iowa. All right, I think... I think I'm just going to abandon this, and we're going to switch mics, if that's all right. Unless somebody's got a different plan. I'm not seeing anybody with a different plan. Okay. There we go. All right. So... So I was born in Iowa. One of my earliest memories was coming home from the hospital. Well, not when I was born, but when my brother was born about two years later. So I, I, do, I think it was coming home from the hospital. I remember we were in the little car. My brother was in, the, in between the front seats, and I was sitting in the back, and 
that might have been sometime after that, but I remember that. And then when I was still very young, we moved here to Bering Springs for my father to attend seminary. And so some of my earliest memories are actually here in the village church. In fact, my first memory of church is downstairs here in Sabbath school. And we found, we found this here. Can anybody read? Can anybody read that name right there? Can you see it? Hilda Hazel. Yeah, so uh, Hilda apparently uh, promoted me to a crater roll Sabbath school. And that's where I learned to sing the, the song that we sang this morning, Oh, How I Love Jesus. I remember when I was four years old, that was my favorite song, and I learned it here at Village, down in the basement in Crater Roll. That, just a little side note for you parents, do not underestimate how important it is to bring your children to Sabbath school and church. Even if they're only two or three or four years old, what's a better time to learn to love Jesus than when you're little? Bring your children to Sabbath school. Don't, don't let the devil distract you with all the other things that happen on Sabbath morning. Because I know, I know, I know things happen and it's hard, but just figure it out and be here. All right. So, yeah, I remember, of course, uh, Hilda, uh, Sabbath school. I, I don't, I'm not sure that I actually specifically remember Hilda, but I do remember Gerhard was one of my favorite professors when I came back to seminary quite a few years later. So we moved after dad graduated, got a call to California, so we moved to California and lived in California in different places around Northern California for a number of years. I won't go into all the details on that right now, but we lived up in the mountains for quite some time and that view of Mount Shasta. That was, we, we built a house there in Mount Shasta. Dad was pastoring the, the Mount Shasta. At that time, it was the Mount Shasta and Wairika churches were in a district. Some of you might know where that is. And so we would go, every other week we'd go to Mount Shasta and then the next week to Wairika church back and forth. And we built a house, had that beautiful view of Mount Shasta, wonderful places to go hiking and camping and I remember we moved away from there when I was 10 years old. And I didn't know why we moved away. I just knew all of a sudden we had to move. And I left behind my best friend, who, uh, Jason Ayer, some of you may know Jim Ayer. Um, anyway, Jason was his son, my best friend in first and second grade. But uh, we had to move. And so we moved away. And I remember thinking back on it now, I think that was the first time that I actually was really depressed. We moved away from the mountains, moved away from my friends, and it, w it wasn't great, but um, we moved to another place and got integrated into another church and life went on. And, and then, oh, let's see, what's, what's the next notable thing perhaps? I dropped out of high school. I was bored. I mean, so we were at a church where they had a, a uh, 10 grade school. So I went through 10th grade 
and then I had the opportunity to either go away to a boarding school or commute to the nearest Adventist day school and I was just bored and so I said you know forget this I'm gonna go to college and so I did I went to Pacific Union College they kind of weren't sure what to do with somebody that was coming from 10th grade into college so they put me on academic probation for the first quarter and then uh, after that everything was good first year there was was okay the second year there actually got really good because that's when I met my wife and the rest as they say is history we we got married I'm going to show you I think I have a picture here there we are so this was a, a few years later in 1992 I think I always have to be careful with dates because <clears throat> my, my wife usually helps me out with the dates and I usually mess them up so but I think it was 92 we were all packed up. We had all of our stuff in that pickup and camper and, and that, that little U-Haul trailer right there. The two of us all, I'm not sure why we were dressed up there to move. We must have been, we must have been getting ready to go to church or something like the day before we pulled out. But anyway, we had all of our stuff and we headed to Andrews University to attend seminary. And that was, that was an interesting trip. And of course, we got here and we lived. It seems to be a thing when we moved to Berrien Springs, we don't have a place to live. So we lived in that camper for about six weeks, parked outside of my uncle's house. And that was okay. Eventually, we found a place to live. I got busy with school, taking classes, learning good stuff. And oh, I, I skipped over one little important thing, so let me, let me back up to uh, PUC. When, it, when I went to PUC, I enrolled as a business major. I had very distinct goals. I had a plan that by the time I was 35, I was going to be a millionaire and retire. And... I, I was on track for that. I, was, I did very well in my business classes. And you know, that was back in the 1980s when things were good and people were doing stuff like that. And, and I, was, I was on track for that. But something happened. Something happened there. It was called a week of prayer. Anybody here ever had an experience in a week of prayer where God got to you? Well, that happened to me. We were sitting, I was sitting there in the, the church in the sanctuary at the PUC, the big church there, and I cannot remember who the speaker was, but I remember he was speaking about God and God's call in your life, and I, I remember distinctly, almost as if it was a voice speaking to me that said, I gave you talents and abilities not for you to waste on yourself, but so that you could serve me. And I didn't really want to be a pastor. You know, I grew up in a pastor's family. I knew the, the difficulties and the challenges with that. But I had the wisdom, gift from God, perhaps, to not argue too much with God. You know, when you argue with God, it just doesn't turn out well. So 
So I said, okay, Lord, I will, I will prepare for the ministry. So that's what I did. And then when I graduated from PUC with a degree in theology and business administration, yes, I did a double major because that's part of being an overachiever. That's part of the story for later. But when I graduated, I didn't get a call to ministry. It's like, okay, Lord, you called me. What's, what's the deal with that? So I talked to people, got advice, talked to conference presidents and uh, my parents and other people. And the conference president in Northern California told me, look, you know, the, the economy is not real great right now, but if you go to seminary, when, when you finish seminary, there'll be a place for you. It's like, okay, so uh, we go to seminary. So we moved here. My wife and I uh, put ourselves through seminary. And something interesting happened the first year in seminary. One of the classes that I took was called the Writings of Ellen White. And the, the major assignment in that class was to choose some topic and to go and study that topic in Ellen White's writings in the, in the basement of the library. Do they still have that there? The Ellen White Study Center in the basement of the library. So we had to spend at least 20 hours down in the basement looking through the documents. This was back before they had everything released and it's all online now pretty much, but they had actual copies of handwritten documents and the old, the old typewritten documents there. And we poured over those. So I chose as my topic the relationship between gospel ministry and medical missionary work. And boy, I'll tell you what, that was, that was quite, quite a uh, research paper that I ended up writing. I'll tell you, after those hours of reading and studying and praying about that, I was convicted that God wanted me to combine pastoral ministry and medical missionary work. And, of course, the, the people at Andrews thought I was crazy because I was in seminary and I went to sign up for pre-med science classes, and they're like, you can't do that. Like, well, um, this is what God asked me to do, so we're going to have to figure it out. And they, they did eventually figure it out. A little funny stories about that that I could tell. But So here's a couple of, I just want, is it okay if I read a quote or two from the things that I found there? Here's this one. It says, the presenting of Bible principles by an intelligent physician will have great weight with many people. There is efficiency and power with one who can combine in his influence the work of a physician and of a gospel minister. His work commends itself to the good judgment of the people. And thus should our physicians labor. They are doing the Lord's work when they labor as evangelists giving instruction as to how the soul may be healed by the Lord Jesus. Every physician should know how to pray in faith for the sick as well as to administer the proper treatment. At the same time, he should labor as one of God's ministers to teach repentance and conversion and the salvation of the soul and body. Such a combination of labor will broaden his experience and greatly enlarge his influence. And then this one, in every city where we have a church, how many cities? 
Every city where we have a church, there is need of a place where treatment can be given. Among the homes of our church members, there are few that afford rooms and facilities for the proper care of the sick. A place should be provided where treatment may be given for common ailments. The building might be inelegant and even rude, but it should be furnished with facilities for giving simple treatments. These, skillfully employed, would prove a blessing, not only to our own people, but to their neighbors, and might be the means of calling the attention of many to health principles. So, th those are just two quotes out of a whole long list, and, and I've found even a couple of letters that were written to physicians telling them that they should be fully qualified as ministers, and letters written to ministers telling them they should be fully qualified as physicians. Not that every pastor should be a doctor and every doctor a pastor per se, but I was convicted that that's what God was calling me to do. And so I, I uh, added in those pre-med science classes and that was an interesting year taking biology, chemistry, and physics and seminary classes all at the same time. And I was also working at the dairy and also uh, working for Adventist Information Ministries, answering the phones and praying with people. It was a busy year or two there. And that's when Michael was born, in the midst of all of that. So, now, something else happened while I was in seminary. I was taking a class on marriage and family, and I think they were having a big weekend marriage and family seminar. There were some big high-powered speakers there. and It was interesting learning about family system dynamics and all that, and I was learning this stuff, and it was interesting. Some of the things that they were saying in the class reminded me of my family, and it wasn't because my family was the model. They were saying that my family had some problems, and I thought, well, that's strange, because, you know, I was a pastor's kid. Our family had to be perfect, right? You know, pastor's families are supposed to be perfect. Pastor's kids are supposed to be perfect. Uh, and do we have any uh, overachievers in here? Anybody that's willing to admit to it? Okay, at least three of you. Thank you. So for those of you don't, who don't know, it's like something that we have that we just have to do more and better and to be perfect. And... So in this seminar, I was kind of puzzled, and it was interesting. Uh, uh, later that Friday evening, my parents called, and I was telling them, hey, this is interesting. I, I heard this at this class about how this, this, and this about our family's supposed to be dysfunctional. And, um, and it was right at that time when they chose to break the news to me that they were separating and getting divorced. How many of you have had that happen to you? Your parents, your family fell apart. Yeah. Well, I was 20-something years old at the time. I was uh, studying to be a pastor. And yet, my, my entire identity of who I was just came apart. And I began to question everything. Like, well, if this, 
Christianity thing is not working for my family, maybe it's not even real. Maybe the whole thing is just a made-up fairy tale. You know, some people think that. And I went into a deep depression for, for months. I don't even remember how many months. And I, I decided that I, I really didn't know what to believe. I didn't know what was true. And I didn't know if I believed in God. I, I just, I didn't know. But I decided, I decided I was just going to take everything that I thought I knew and set it aside and start from nothing and try to figure it out. While I was still taking seminary classes. <laughs> it was kind of funny in a, in a way. I, I didn't want to admit to anybody that I had questions about anything. I'll bet you there's, there's some of you that have had questions in your life that you are afraid to admit to anybody. Well, I, I didn't tell anybody that I was having this existential crisis. I kept going to classes, getting good grades in seminary, and helping out the church, and being a husband and father, but actually for about six months, I spent most of my time I gotta tell you, if you're having an existential crisis, it's a great place to do it in a university library. I mean, we have a, a great library here. I actually spent most of my time in the library studying for myself, trying to figure this out, and, and somehow I managed to still do okay in all my seminary classes. I'm not sure how that happened, but God was good. God was good to me. So, <clears throat> Where do you start when you're not sure of anything and, and you don't know what to believe? Well, you have to start with trying to figure out, is there such a thing as truth? And if there is such a thing as truth, is it possible for us to know that? So these are the big questions of philosophy and epistemology. There's fancy words, but it just means like, is there actual truth and can we know it? And how do we know that? And so I, I won't belabor all of the points of the process that I went through, but I just started reading books on epistemology, uh, philosophy, you know, Socrates and Plato and Confucius and all those guys. And, and so what I want to do is I want to kind of walk you through a little bit this, the process of how this went for me. Because you, obviously you've guessed by now I ended up here, so there must have been some kind of resolution out of that. So the first question in my mind was, is everything really just nature, or is there something supernatural out there? And I just was in the midst of taking biology, and oh man, have you ever studied biology? Have you ever looked at a cell under an electron microscope and looked at the biochemistry of how that works? Like the, the people, I, I gotta tell you, after, after studying, and I studied it some more on my own independently, 
there is so much complexity, irreducible complexity in a single cell that defies any possible logical explanation of how that could happen by chance. And that's to say nothing of how did everything get here in the first place. Like, if you believe that, that nature is all there is, then you have to believe that somehow nature created itself because everything is not the way it's always been. Nature is changing. We know that. Scientists, uh, cosmologists, astronomers, archaeologists, geologists, everywhere there's evidence that things have been changing throughout time. And yet the, the, the Bible tells us there are scoffers who tell us that everything continues as it was from the beginning. Well, so you either have to believe the absurdity that nothing created everything or that some sort of power outside of nature had some influence on creating nature. So I decided I, I, <laughs> I was questioning everything. I didn't have enough faith to believe that, that everything created itself out of nothing. And so there had to be some sort of supernatural something. And, and, and then that leads you to the question of what supernatural something? Because there's lots of options out there. I don't know if you've ever studied into all the different world religions, but man, I did. I dug into it. There's a lot of options. There's one of the key questions is, is this creative supernatural force, is it an impersonal force or is it a personal force? Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, there are a number of world religions that believe in this great supernatural oneness, this one power that is in everything and through everything and unites everything. And then there are religions that believe in actual personal beings, supernatural beings that have a personal identity. And man, when you're starting from nothing, it's like you have to do a lot of study to look at all the different, there's a lot of options. And so I did that. I, I, I well, I don't really know, but it's got to be one or the other. And so how am I going to figure this out? So I, I looked at world religions and I had some sort of criteria in my mind that, that the, the true explanation probably would, um, <clears throat> probably would not be just some guy all by himself speaking the truth and everybody else in history being, you know, making stuff up and just imagining their religion. So, so the true religion must have some sort of history to it. There must be some kind of, if there is a supernatural force that created the world, there must be some sort of ongoing interaction between that supernatural force and the creation. So I looked at Hinduism and uh, the, the various offshoots of Hinduism and Sikhism and Buddhism and Confucianism, Taoism, uh, Baha'i, and then of course animism. Animism is a very ancient religion that's widespread around the world. There's, there's not a well-codified set of doctrines, but there's a, a, a thread that unites animistic type 
belief systems. And of course, the monotheistic religions, chief among them being Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. That's a lot. It's a lot. When you start to study those things, and, and again, I'll kind of shorten the, the process because we don't have six months to go through all the details here this morning. <clears throat> but I'll just tell you, in my mind, it came down to, yeah, it's either one or the other. There's, it's either this impersonal force of some sort of flavor of Buddhism or something like that, or it's a personal god of the monotheistic tradition. And then once, once we get into that tradition, then we're looking at scripture and comparing scripture with scripture. And, and then you kind of come down to, like, some of them are just, I'm sorry, but some of those religions are obviously made up religions. Like people just had a dream and they wrote a book and that's their religion. Like, well, that's, no, <laughs> that's, okay. So obviously I ended up coming back home. I studied myself back into believing that there is a personal loving God who created this world. He speaks to us through his word and he's, he's given his son to die for our sins. So uh, just to summarize my reasons, skip that slide, there we go. My reasons, first reason, creation by an intelligent designer is the most reasonable explanation for the universe and for life on earth. And I know there's people out there that disagree with that, but they mainly disagree with that because they have an a priori assumption or belief that there is no God. And, and if you've ever been in a room full of, of evolutionists, they cannot agree with each other on anything except that they don't believe in God. All right, so that's the first reason. Second, the Judeo-Christian religion is the only one that is firmly rooted in history. And, and I don't just mean that it has a history, but it is the history. The, the history of God and his interaction with this world is the Judeo-Christian religion as found in the Bible. And there's so much archeological evidence for the veracity of the Bible. And that was one of the things I, I loved about Dr. Hazel. He dug into that, man. It, there's so much evidence for the truth of the word of God all the way from the beginning to the end. And you can't find that in any other religion. I mean, there are some other religions that have beautiful sayings and, and wonderful stories, but they don't have a connection with reality the way that the God of the Bible and the, the story of the Bible has. And, and there's more and more evidence being dug up every single day that verifies the Bible is the word of God. And then right along with that, predictive prophecy. Now there are other religions that have prophecies and you know, some of them are these sort of vague things and some of them are, yeah, there's, there's some predictions out there that have been made that have come true, but the Bible is far and away head and shoulders above anything else out there. And thankfully I had been through enough prophecy seminars that when I went and started studying this all out on my own, it's like I had some idea what I was looking for. And when, I, when you look at it, it, it's amazing 
Have you studied the prophecies lately? You should. It will renew your faith. The Bible, the, just the prophecies of Daniel alone. So our, our higher critical friends out there will tell us the book of Daniel wasn't written by Daniel. It was written hundreds of years later. Like, okay, even if I give you that, why is there a prophecy in the book of Daniel that tells the history of what's going on right now in the world? The history from the time of Daniel to present day. You can't make that stuff up. And the reality is there's good evidence that actually the book of Daniel was written by Daniel at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and it predicted the very time when Jesus would be baptized and anointed as Messiah, the very time when he would die on the cross for your sins and mine. There's, there's no other scripture anywhere that comes close to that. It's amazing. Next, when practiced, when practiced, the principles of life that are taught in the Bible lead to health and happiness much more consistently than any other religion. Some of those religions, um, and it is so sad, it's so sad. You look around the world and you go to places where, where human life is not valued because of their religion. It's really sad that the God of creation, the God who created us, loves us and he teaches us to love one another. He teaches us to care for our bodies. He teaches us to, to care for one another. I gotta tell you, friends, going through this process and, and studying myself back into the church and everything that we know and believe that's, that, that's been handed down to us we need to contend for the faith. At our ministerial retreat, we just went over the book of Jude, and Jude calls us to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I want to tell you, it's sad when I see Seventh-day Adventists today who are slipping out of the church, who are downplaying the truths that we know, the truths that we have been given, because, well, that's old-fashioned. Or, well, Look at this. We, it's, it's really strange. I'll give you just one example. We think of, of nutrition. The Bible is pretty clear on what God designed human beings to eat. Okay? And we have additional writings that give us additional information about that. And so we have a church where we've, we've taught people to follow the, the diet that God gave us in the Bible of eating the fruits and nuts and vegetables and grains and seeds and all that good stuff that he made for us. And we have people in the church that are going, ah, you know what, give me a Big Mac, you know, I want a steak, you know, all this stuff. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that, that that's the gospel, but look, the, the world out there, people are discovering the benefits of a plant-based diet. It's all over the medical literature, and there's so many places in Adventism where people are giving it up and going to what was the world standard. That's so sad. I could go on and on with the whole list. Brothers and sisters, time is short hold the standards up and, and, and don't give up on the, the things that have been given to us through the word of God and through inspiration. They're there for a reason and it's, it's for our good. The, the principles of life that have been given to us are the keys to happiness in this life and the life to come. The great controversy theme is the most intellectually satisfying answer to the question of theodicy. That's the question of why is there evil in the world if God is so good? 
I won't go into this one, but you know, the great controversy theme is, is what, what a gift God has given us. And finally, the knowledge of a loving, personal creator who desires connection with you and sacrifices himself for your happiness is more satisfying than any other belief system. So I'm asking you, why are you here today? I want to urge you, if you are here because you're of your parents, if you are here because of tradition, if you are here because of social connections, you need to have a personal relationship with God. Jesus, I'm going to skip a couple of slides here. Jesus has given you the power to become a son or daughter of God. God does not have grandchildren. God has children. You have to have a direct relationship with God. Just the fact that your parents are Seventh-day Adventists is not enough. Just the fact that your friends are in Sabbath school is not enough. You need to have a direct and solid relationship with Jesus Christ. The, the time is coming when, when your parents are divorcing and all the bad things you can think of, that's nothing compared to what's coming upon this world. There will be a time of trouble like there's never been before, and we need to be ready. And how can we be ready? We can only be ready by realizing that Jesus loves us. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. So I want to challenge you today, make sure, make sure that your anchor is on the solid rock, that you have a relationship with God for real. If you want to hear part two, you can tune in for second service. Now we're going to sing our closing hymn. Jesus, lover of my soul.